2: Welcome to Drum Tower. I'm Alice Su, Senior China Correspondent for The Economist based in Taipei. I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief.
1: Xi Jinping left the COVID chaos at home for three days last week to visit Riyadh. Saudi Arabia is the world's largest oil exporter and China is the world's largest oil consumer. For China, which doesn't have much oil and gas of its own, energy security is a huge concern. That's one reason why Xi Jinping is making friends in the Gulf. Security concerns also make China look more fondly on one energy source found within its own borders, the dirtiest fossil fuel of all, coal. In
2: 2020, Xi Jinping made some surprisingly ambitious climate promises. China's building more wind turbines and solar farms than any other country in the world. But China is also planning a scary number of new coal-fired power stations.
1: This week, we're going to try to understand these contradictions from the point of view of China's leaders. We're asking, is China serious about climate change?
2: We'll take you inside the national conversation on climate and look at how climate change is impacting people's lives. China's a hard place to be an activist. But we'll find out how Chinese environmentalists are nudging climate higher up the party's agenda. This is Drumta. From The Economist. Hey, David, how are you? How's it going in Beijing?
1: Well, it's really cold outside. Uh, Nice blue skies. But in fact, I have been indoors for a few days because we're in the kind of the end zone of zero COVID. And the controls are kind of breaking down and the quarantine system is breaking down, but it's sort of on your own conscience. And I was actually at a lunch at an embassy and someone there had COVID and we were all warned that we probably should stay indoors and do self-testing. So I'm here self-testing, working away, Uh, but the cats are very happy because I am working from home and that is good for cats. So Alice, you're in Taiwan. I guess you don't have COVID controls, but you also don't have winter either, right?
2: No, we don't. It is very warm and humid here in Taipei. And actually, when I moved here from Beijing, I brought all these air purifiers that I used to have running all the time, especially in the Beijing winter, because there was so much smog. And I don't miss that at all. But you know, I've actually had to switch out all of those air purifiers for dehumidifiers in Taiwan because it's very warm and humid here. But you know, I just try not to think about how much electricity I'm using, you know, constantly relying on different types of machines to help me adjust to the climate.
1: So the air is nice inside, but we're killing the planet. (laughs) I know that guilt. Let's stay with that subject because this week we are going to be talking about climate change and China's role in climate change. And actually, to be kind of transparent with listeners, we were planning this episode a couple of weeks ago, but we just got overtaken by the news. And when there is big news, we will jump right on it. But we don't want to let the urgent get in the way of stuff that is also really important.
2: We've also been reading our listener emails in the middle of all this news, and people have been asking us to do an episode about climate. They've been asking about how China balances between its needs for energy security and its commitments to climate, and about what Chinese public opinion is on climate change.
1: China often feels singled out and picked on as the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. But the promise is just so big that when China is a climate hero or a climate villain, that just can cancel out the efforts of an entire European country to try and fight climate change. And the truth is that there was a time about a decade ago when China's emissions were growing at a really terrifying rate that really made this country the climate villain, because the government here was pouring stimulus money in, building new roads and airports and whole cities to keep the economy moving fast. And so between 2011 and 2013, if you want a really scary climate fact During those years of maximum stimulus spending, China used more cement in three years than the United States used in the entire 20th century. And that matters to the planet because making cement is really bad for the climate. It's a huge emission. But now, as we'll look at this week, China is a hero in terms of the investments it's making in solar, in wind, in hydro and other renewables. But security is the heart. Of how i think xi jinping and the chinese leadership thinks about climate and energy everywhere xi jinping looks around the world he sees security threats and you know sure climate change is a security threat in its own right for china china has a lot of coastal cities that will be drowned by rising sea levels and you and i alice we've covered extreme weather events that threaten china's food security but a focus on energy security is pushing xi jinping to be much more cautious about how quickly he ditches coal and other dirty fossil fuels. So this week, we're going to be looking at how all of these different security concerns are disrupting China's promises to go green.
2: It was a huge deal two years ago when Xi Jinping set these two targets for China. And here's what he said at the UN General Assembly in
3: 2020. <laughs>
2: We aim to have carbon dioxide emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. And in 2021, Xi Jinping also pledged that China would not lend to build new overseas coal power plants. That was a big deal because China was one of the last major funders of coal-fired power plants in other countries.
1: And after those targets were made in public, we've seen a gigantic investment in solar parks, in wind turbines, just, you know, dwarfing efforts of every other country. But we've also seen pushback and the coal lobby opening huge new coal mines, new coal-fired power plants, and a real emphasis on energy security.
2: And one reason why they care so much about energy security is because China has also gone through power cuts in recent years when extreme weather dries up the hydropower dams and energy prices go crazy. And that's why the Chinese government has turned back to coal.
1: So, Alice, you know, the question at the top, is China serious about climate change? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes and no at the same time, right? And so it's about these conflicting targets. And at the moment, they are basically building the world's biggest clean, green, new energy system, whilst also building an old, dirty, coal-fired one, just in case they need it. And you see that reflected in language, even in the things like the Party Congress report.
2: That's right. In Xi Jinping's report at the Congress, he said based on China's energy and resource endowment, we will advance initiatives to reach peak carbon emissions in a well-planned and phased way in line with the principle of building the new before discarding the old. And that's why it can be really confusing to see, oh, China seems to be pursuing renewables at a really fast world-leading pace. But then at the same time, China is building up so much coal.
1: And that's about things like the the worries about the economy, those power cuts you talked about, but also national security and geopolitics, right? The idea that, Tankers may not safely reach China in the kind of, you know, if tensions get really, really bad. The one thing China has an absolute ton of within its own borders is coal.
2: Yeah. And actually, China produces around 90% of the coal it consumes, whereas it has to import 70% and 50% of the oil and gas that it needs. So if you want to be self sufficient and also you want to use a form of energy that is still, you know, easier to store and, and can be more dependable than renewables, then for China, coal is the choice. Scorching heat wave grinding work on the world's factory floors to a screeching halt as China battles its worst heat wave on record.
1: It is brutal down there. I was in Wuhan late last week. It was so hot you couldn't sit down on the on the steps outside of a building. It felt
2: like your buns were cooking.
3: Pile upon pile of dead poultry at a chicken farm in Sichuan, China, and the farmer is devastated. <laughs> I watched them die, she says through tears. The temperature was so high yesterday, yet they cut out the power.
0: This is China's largest freshwater lake turned bone dry.
1: That was this summer in a terrible drought. And the summer before, there were killer floods in the province of Henan.
3: We begin in China, where large swathes of Henan province are underwater after being
2: pummeled by torrential rain. Weather forecasters say it is the heaviest downpour in 1,000 years. At least As these extreme climate change. events become more frequent and more deadly, I think there is beginning to be a shift in public opinion and in public awareness in China about climate change, about how much it affects China and also the whole world. That's something that our colleague, Catherine Brahik actually heard about at COP, the UN Climate Summit, earlier this year. She was there as our environment editor, and she met with Li Shuo, who is the global policy advisor for Greenpeace East Asia. He told her that there is starting to be a real change in Chinese public opinion on climate.
3: It is primarily an international environmental issue as opposed to you know, an issue that is firmly anchored into uh, our domestic uh, public discourse. But I think this is uh, beginning to change since two years ago. We had a major flood in the central winds in the country, uh, what you basically had there was during these 24 hours of the day, uh, the precipitation reached the annual amount of that place. And then, you know, you saw people started to um, ask questions on why did this happen? Why was it so extreme? And also, you mm-hmm. know, kind of making a connection between that severe weather event uh, and climate change.
2: I think it wasn't until I spent a few years consecutive years living in and working in China that I realized how frequent these extreme weather events are. You know, almost every summer there are floods and you see these really striking images in Xinhua and in, on the wires, but it's not until you go there on the ground and you meet people that you understand, you know, how devastating they can be So yeah for example,
1: that's me talking to a family whose little microcar was completely wrecked by floods, being carried away on a forklift truck. I was asking everyone, do you think the weather's got weird recently? Do you think that's climate change? What should the government do about it?.
3: Uh,
2: when I was in Zhengzhou, I, I remember I was also asking the same questions because I knew that Western media coverage was interested in this and we wanted to know, you know, are Chinese people thinking about climate change? To me, it almost felt weird to ask people that question on the ground after they had just lost everything, you know, just seen their homes destroyed. And then I would say, you know, do you think this is because we're using fossil fuels? <laughs> you know? um, sometimes it, was, it almost seemed like a very distant topic for a lot of people that I met. It was clear to me that people on the ground and, you know, the most vulnerable people in China's villages were aware that things were getting worse they would say things like we've never seen rains like this we've never seen floods like this we have rain al- always it's every year and sometimes we have floods but it's getting worse but they wouldn't necessarily then connect it to a broader global trend and sometimes they would be critical of the government but it would be oftentimes very targeted at the local government and people would be very angry saying why didn't the government warn us about this why didn't they evacuate us if you remember there was a really scary scene last year, a really terrible thing that happened in the subway in Zhengzhou, where the subway was being flooded, but it wasn't shut off. And 14 people died in there. And people were really angry. They were asking, why didn't the city government stop the subway? You know, Why didn't officials take responsibility and realize we have an emergency here and you know, we need to take care of the citizens? So it was often about that, but not so much about the sense of there's a global climate crisis and, and we're all part of it.
1: And let's be clear, the Chinese Communist Party does not encourage ordinary people to have views on what top leaders are doing when they go to places like COP and negotiate with the Americans. So you're absolutely right, Alex, It's all about the local response. And they've also spent decades telling people that the Communist Party can conquer nature with engineering and pouring concrete.
2: But at the same time, there is some change in public thinking because of all the recent extreme weather. Here's Kat again, speaking with Li Shuo at COP i'm interested in whether you see a generational shift in the west we've seen a huge generational shift in the young
1: 20s and teenagers are obviously t- taken on the climate cause with huge energy is
3: that happening in china as well i think to some extent i think there is a generational aspect here but at the same time i think this is really uh, just the climate impacts taking place in china over the last two years is quite widespread i think we're at the beginning of a national awakening to uh, climate impacts. The question is, will the public decide to take more action as a result of this? We remain to see uh, the answer to this question.
2: So after I heard what Li Shua said about national awakening, I wanted to see if there were any statistics to back that up. I went to look At public opinion polls. And I found this very interesting survey that the European Investment Bank does every year. It's essentially looking at public opinion on climate change and on what people think about what their governments are doing on climate change. And in the latest survey from last summer, it was interesting to me because... One, it did back up what Li Shuo said, you know, it said there's a large majority of Chinese respondents who say climate change is impacting their everyday lives. So it shows that they care. And actually, the percentage of people who care was higher than that of respondents from Europe and from America. But it was also interesting to me that there was a lot more confidence coming from the Chinese respondents. Ninety three percent said, you know, our government will succeed And they also said they felt that their government was more concerned than the citizens were. And if you just think about it, having lived in the West and in China, in the West we have you know, really active civil society, activism, people who are out on the streets protesting and pushing their governments to act. And, you know, that's how you achieve change in the West, right? Is you, you criticize your government, you say what's wrong, and you push them to do something about climate change. And you could see in the surveys that they're kind of this mirror image of the Chinese respondents where they were much more active and they felt that Europeans and Americans felt that they cared more than their governments did, but they were also much more pessimistic. And they were saying, we don't think our governments are doing enough and we don't think that they will meet their climate goals. And, you know, there is this strand of thinking out there that you and I have both heard, which is because China is this authoritarian system that, you know, is an efficient one-party system that has so much control and has so much trust from the population, they can achieve big goals and they can set huge targets and mobilize everyone and achieve whatever they want. And that is a unique advantage of the Chinese system. And so in some ways, some people could read this survey and say, oh, this kind of seems to support that view.
1: That's right. There's always the voices saying that, you know, China can make the trains run on time and can make the country green because it's a dictatorship.
2: Unless people complain. People aren't complaining. They have faith. They say, like, we can do it or the government can do it. <laughs> yeah.
1: But here's the news flash: You know, a Chinese Greta Thunberg on this sort of climate strike, she'd be in prison within like three weeks, right? And arrested within five minutes. So there are downsides to this. And the Chinese Communist Party, they are above all interested in the Chinese Communist Party's continued authority and stability. So... If climate is a threat to stability, then they'll try and fix climate. But they'll also watch for national security, so foreigners can't cut off China's oil. They'll worry about food security, so people aren't panicking about how much they have to eat. And if prices go too high of things like electricity, China has really cheap electricity. And even during the power cuts this summer, what was their response to power cuts? They immediately closed factories to allow people to have their aircon on because they're scared of public protests. And instead of raising electricity prices, which are very cheap in some places, They're building more coal-fired power, so there won't be power cuts again. So this idea that the Chinese Communist Party is kind of super green and can be super green because it's a dictatorship, I think overlooks the fact that they are above all, they're not green, they're not red, they're not left, they're not right. They are the Chinese Communist Party interested in the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And where climate threatens their stability, to that extent, they'll take it really seriously.
2: Basically, they're looking for stability and security. And that is the best way to understand both how they interact with public opinion on climate change and and the policy decisions that they make, even though sometimes they are conflicting.
1: One of the things I think that worries climate scientists is that at certain moments, you can see a kind of anti-green backlash. And so during some of the power cuts last year, this year, there were grumblings in China about, well, maybe we've been too green too quickly. Maybe some of these plans to phase out coal were too much too soon. Something we need to remember about the Chinese climate debate is we understand how it works in places like America. Republicans are sceptical. Democrats are willing to take some pain to save the planet. Social Democrats in Europe are willing to take some pain. Greens doesn't work like that here. It's all bound up together. You know, these are super conservative national security guys who are also talking about doing their bit for climate. And it's much, much harder to read because They're trying to juggle all kinds of different incentives.
2: We'll be back in a moment to look at how China's climate contradictions are actually a window into how the country works. We'll find out how people who care about climate are able to push for change without upsetting the system.
1: In the meantime, as a subscriber, you can read and listen to all of The Economist's coverage of Xi Jinping's trip to Riyadh and our reporting on climate change, our analysis from the latest cop meeting for the best introductory offer go to economist.com/drumoffer Welcome back to Drum Tower. One of the challenges of trying to report on the environment in China is that so many pieces of the puzzle that you see elsewhere, the NGOs, the campaigners, the activists, they are really, really strictly controlled in this country. But there are some outfits that have worked out how to work with the government when they see the signals that the policies are shifting. One of the smartest is a guy called Ma Jun. He's based in Beijing, he runs the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. It's been around for about 16 years. And when he heard Xi Jinping at the United Nations make these really ambitious climate promises, he saw an opening.
0: When the president made his carbon pick and neutrality pledge in September 2020, it not just surprised foreigners, it also surprised quite a few insiders and uh, quite some of the local officials. I think they were all caught by surprise. And then they try to grapple and rush to try to implement
1: it. And it's not an accident that Marjun is talking about local officials there. Because one of the things that he's been so good at over the years, with things like cleaning up dirty rivers, uh, cleaning up polluted skies, is to work out that when the central government has given an order, you have to find out ways to nudge and prod and maybe sometimes frighten local officials into obeying that instruction from the top. Because here's one of the mysteries about China, that Xi Jinping, this incredibly powerful man, when he says jump, local officials do jump. But when it comes to fixing climate change, there are all kinds of reasons that make them very reluctant to move too fast.
0: The renewable energy still cannot easily substitute all the fossil fuel and also they can't miss that so in china the local officials they are in charge of very very large region and population some of them burning half of the coal consumption in america in just that one province so they are facing multiple challenges and uh, in their job review, it's very important about which indicator got into the job review mechanism.
2: Hold on. So Majun just said something about the job review mechanism. What does that mean? What is he talking about?
1: So this one Marjun is onto something really interesting. So China, right? We don't have elections here. We have, you know, appointments to all these big jobs. Who appoints them? The central government at some level, the party center appoints these senior positions. So if you're a Chinese official sitting behind your desk. As the mayor of a city or the governor of a province, you are worrying about your next job move. They move around the country all the time. It's a very secretive process. And Margin and others like him have worked out that if you can actually say it's not only economic growth that gets you promoted, it's not only job creation. It's also having clean air, clean water, and now doing something about carbon emissions. You could actually work with the system to make a big difference. I think, you know, we have to. Imagine it's not just Xi Jinping at the UN lectern in New York that can't. It's also all these guys, and it's almost always guys, as you know, Alice, <laughs> sitting behind their desks worrying about their next job. And if you can get into their heads that they're going to get promoted if they go green and they're going to not get promoted, they're going to get sent somewhere really rubbish if they don't go green, then you can make a surprising difference.
2: So, how does Majun play a role in that, you know, in bringing climate indicators into? job performance reviews for local officials, if you will, given that he's not part of the government? What can he do?
1: So you're absolutely right. You have to kind of be subtle about it. So margins NGO, the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, they work, for example, when the government in Beijing issues a clean air action plan and makes it clear that that will be used to judge officials, they kind of jump on that. And so then they say, well, this is how you could measure it. This would be how you could do up a ranking and a kind of league table of good and bad cities, good and bad mayors. And then he told me that he knows he's making a difference when he goes to meet a city mayor or he goes to meet some big provincial boss and they're all over him. How do I get onto the league table? How do I get up the kind of the rankings? And so then he can tell that even though the system ultimately is not at all transparent, that these measures are making a difference.
2: If we go back to that idea of, you know, the local provincial official sitting at his desk thinking, okay, how am I going to meet these targets that have been given to me from above? It's, It's complicated for multiple reasons. First of all, you know, the different provinces have different advantages.
1: China is surprisingly federal. So some provinces, they're all about coal and heavy industry and steel. But, you know, some like, you know, Sichuan has tons and tons of hydropower because it basically it slopes, you know, it goes from the Tibetan plateau at one end down to kind of the river basins at the other. You have places like Hainan, which are all about tourism and a bit of light energy and lots of forests. So there's a list of provinces that actually, they have it really easy. And then there are a list of kind of rust belt provinces. They're all about the coal and the steel and cement and heavy industry. And for them, it's really, really hard to go green. So one of the things you see is activists saying, as each province is forced to come up with its own plan to do its bit, to hit that Xi Jinping top-down target... They're calling on the easy provinces to do it quickly and to do more than they have to. Don't just do the minimum because it's going to be really easy for some and really, really painful for others. The other political problem in China is that it's a surprisingly decentralized place where if you lose a bunch of coal jobs and coal revenues in one province and then another province is like, well, I'm covered in solar panels, I'm good. The money doesn't flow between those provinces and the jobs don't really kind of help another province out. So if you're sitting in a coal province You don't care very much if another place is going gangbusters on renewables.
2: But then there are also mixed messages that have come out from the top leadership, right? So in in 2020, Xi Jinping set these carbon goals, but then in 2021, China experienced these really severe power shortages, blackouts uh, in different parts of the country. And then you heard all these new messages coming from Chinese leaders about energy security, about making sure that there is enough electricity for residential use and for industrial use, and about continued reliance on coal as the most stable source of energy.
1: That's right. Marja makes this really interesting point. Investors don't know, are they meant to be investing in coal? for national security or they're not meant to be investing in coal because it has no future the problem with even a bit of investment in coal is that a last minute kind of surge of coal could waste a lot of time and delay that crucial moment when china really tries to bend the curve and to go carbon neutral because the truth is that china's promise to peak isn't actually that hard their emissions have been more or less flat for the past decade or so the real question is not the peak but what's on the other side and whether it's realistic for China to keep its promises and come down fast enough to go carbon neutral.
0: So we can see that in China, actually, the rate of the expansion of the installation capacity of uh, renewables, wind and solar, all outpaced the target. And investors, and they all understand that uh, actually coal doesn't have a very promising future. They don't want to actually put money behind that. But now the central government requires that to happen to ensure energy security. So China's commitment is a commitment saying that, you know, we need to pick by 2030, by 2060, you know, we're going to neutralize our carbon emission. And uh, how much before that deadline? I think it's up to the other stakeholders. If we want that to happen uh, sooner, if we want to bend the curve faster, then I think we need to work together to try to come up with more innovative solutions, and I continue to think about all these IT technologies and development of new technologies, give us the chance to tap into the digital solutions and to hasten our process.
1: We began by talking about Xi Jinping in Saudi Arabia, you know, the geopolitical great games as China offers Gulf monarchies a friendly, no questions asked, kind of autocratic alternative to friendship with America. But we shouldn't end without a mention of another geopolitical pressure that actually could nudge China to try harder on climate. Because a lot of countries, particularly in the global South, that China really wants to recruit as supporters and friends, you know, countries in Africa or small Pacific islands, they are on the front lines of climate change and extreme weather. And that is making those leaders more willing to speak out and to hold the biggest emitters to account, whether that's China or America.
2: That's right. And that international pressure really matters. But I think what what we've seen today in our discussion is that at the end of the day, what ultimately drives the Communist Party's decisions is always a desire for domestic control and stability. And that's why China is doing these two contradictory things at the same time, right? Investing in renewables, but also increasing coal. It's all about security. And China has so many reasons to worry about security right now, from COVID chaos to economic slowdown to protests and and geopolitics, that it's easy for them to postpone hard decisions on slower burning crises like climate change. For us, the best way to understand how China makes its decisions and, and why it makes its decisions is always to keep a close eye on what's happening on the ground. That's what we'll keep doing here every week at Drum Tower.
1: We're always burning the midnight oil here at Drum Tower, and that includes reading your brilliant emails. So please keep sending them in. You can send a voice message or a text email to drum at economist.com.
2: Here at The Economist, we're also always thinking of ways to improve our podcasts. And to do that, we would like to know more about you, our listeners. Please help us by filling out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash drum survey. It only takes a few minutes and the link is in the notes for this episode.
1: Thanks for listening. And we'll have more tar next week.
2: This episode was edited by Poppy Sebag Montefiore with production help from Barclay Brand. Our sound engineer is Wei Lin and the music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. Our executive producer is Sandra Schmueli.